Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today, Angus Horden chats with Ron Aitken. Ron flew a remarkable 261 operational bombing missions over Vietnam. This is their talk. Enjoy. I'm Angus Horden, and we're speaking today with Ron Aitken. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Ron. Thanks for asking me. Ron, you graduate from Knox Grammar School with experience in the School Cadet Corps under your belt, and you begin studying engineering at university. But before you finish your degree, you decide to join the Royal Air Force. I only did one and a half years of my mechanical engineering degree, and I wasn't finding the, uh, the whole situation of life at the time terribly uh, motivating shall we say, and I'd always been very interested in aeroplanes and and flying. I noticed an advertisement in one of the Sydney papers. It said something like, learn to fly, join the Air Force or something of that nature. So I applied. Had to do a lot of aptitude testing uh, at the recruiting centre in Sydney. I forget where that was. I think it was down at Rushcutters Bay. And to do this, I'd had to take some time off from work because whilst I was doing this engineering degree, I was also employed as a, as a cadet, production engineering cadet, with Latorno Westinghouse in Sydney. And they were looking after me pretty well. So I took a sickie off to do the initial testing. And then they asked me to go for the medical. I decided that perhaps this was stretching it all a bit too far and perhaps I didn't really want to do this. You know, I might be better off staying on the engineering stream that I was I was on at the time and that was certainly my father's viewpoint so I didn't turn up to the medical and then uh, I got a call from the recruiting officer later that day to say that they were a bit disappointed that I hadn't turned up to the medical and I explained to them that I really couldn't take any more time off work. They suggested they would send a taxi around and take me to a, an arranged medical at seven o'clock in the evening and I couldn't very well say no to that so went along with that and I passed the medical and then attended the, uh, the interview board where you have a, about five Air Force officers and I think a psychologist sitting in front of you and they ask you a string of questions. And they were all oriented to discovering how deep was my interest in aviation and, uh, and how I felt about military service and so on. Now, of course, my being in the cadet corps at school was, of course, a real positive in that respect because I already had an understanding, a basic understanding of military service would entail. And then they asked me a lot of questions about aeroplanes. Now, I was, at that time, it had been my hobby. I'd been getting Flight Magazine by subscription since I was about uh, 13, I think. So I knew pretty much every aeroplane in the sky. I could recognise everything. I knew all the engines that they were powered by and there wasn't a question they could ask me that I couldn't answer. So that, that was OK. And then uh, one of the... Uh, the officers asked a question which led me to say that I would, would rather join the RAF instead of the RAAF. <laughs> and I was asked why, and I said, well, they've got better aeroplanes. <laughs> but that didn't seem to phase them at all because it was true, of course. So anyway, I was then sent to pilot's course down at Point Cook. In my recollection, there were about um, 15 or 16 of us, perhaps even 17, when we started on, on the course. I had the aspirations to learn to fly, but not, not any experience at that point. 
anyway, I was the first fellow on course to go solo, which was, uh, you know, on, on the windshield, which I think uh, wasn't something the other guys had expected. <laughs> Ron, you trained as a pilot and then as a navigator. What was navigation like back then? Well, of course, we didn't have the facilities for navigation that, that are available today. There was no such thing as GPS. That hadn't, I guess it was on the horizon somewhere, but it certainly didn't exist. And in fact, there were no significant area navigation aids available. Loran, long-range navigation, was available over the northern Pacific, and there were some Loran chains operating over the Atlantic and into Europe. So when I graduated as a navigator in the early 60s, we were still very reliant on astro-navigation, that is, using a sextant, even in daytime. In daytime, of course, we only had the sun. Occasionally, we'd have the moon, so we'd have the convenience of a sun-moon fix, which would give you a much more accurate fix, of course. And there were some methods of using the sun only, but generally, air travel was very reliant on a navigator. Qantas was still using navigators in those days, and, uh, and certainly the Air Force needed a navigator because we weren't flying designated routes. We just flew anywhere we had to fly and we had to fly it at all altitudes and we flew a range of different types of aircraft of course. Then in 1970 you're posted to Vietnam in Canberra bombers. I understand that you used New Zealand as a flight training for the terrain. We did. New Zealand conveniently looked very much like North Vietnam. In the, in the North Island it looked a bit like the southern parts of the country, that is around the Delta region and uh, what was in Vietnam War days called Four Corps and Three Corps, which was the next region north. Four Corps was like a billiard table, it was the Delta area of the, uh, of the river, but the Mekong. But Three Corps area was hilly and these two areas were simulated pretty well by the North Island and New Zealand. The appearance of the ground, the vegetation and so on was quite reminiscent really. The South Island of New Zealand, being the really mountainous part for New, the New Zealand, was very much more akin to two and I-Corps or one core. We used to call one core I-Corps. That was the standard sort of terminology at the time. Now these were very, very hilly areas, very mountainous areas indeed. In fact, two core, which was where I was based at Phan Rang, was pretty much the most mountainous area. There are particular requirements to flying in mountainous areas if you're going to fly low down. You can't find yourself flying up a valley that exceeds the aircraft's rate of climb because you will inevitably hit the ground <laughs> before you, because you often can't turn within the confines of, of the terrain. So it does require a bit more planning and a bit of understanding. So New Zealand was very handy for that. So of course in New Zealand we had to fly within these, these terrain situations at very low altitude and that would of course be the altitude that the crop dusters were operating. So we had to keep our eyes peeled for the crop dusters and they had to keep their eyes peeled for us. Now the New Zealand Air Force were operating Canberra's too at that time so you know this wasn't an unfamiliar aeroplane to them and so they were used to the Kiwis doing much the same thing as, as we did but it was nevertheless a, a risk and uh, some of the crop dusters used to get a bit of a fright when we suddenly appeared. <laughs> You mentioned that you were based in Phan Rang. I understand that the Viet Cong were sending rockets across to you. Yes, they used to set these rockets up on fairly primitive launching mounts. They had a very simple wooden platform. The rocket would sit on this launching system and they were triggered by, uh, so I was told anyway, water triggers in much the way the fellows got out of Gallipoli. Uh, without the Turks realising, by intermittent rifle fire being set off by these water containers that as the water leaked out, it finally got to the point where the weight, you know, pulled the trigger and the gun fired. Well, they used to launch these in much the same way. So they would set them up during the night and then they'd disappear and the rocket would then be timed with this, this little timing device to launch around about dawn or just pre-dawn. The 
base at Fan Rang was something like 25 square kilometres. The perimeter was 17 miles, as I recall. It was quite a large perimeter. So it was a big area to land these rockets in. But they landed in a very random way. The uh, device they used to set the rocket up was not able to aim accurately. So they just landed somewhere in the base. And we had a few people injured, and I think there were a few people killed, but none in the Australian lines. I don't think any rocket, certainly not while I was there, no rocket landed in our lines. But it may well have done. The rocket could have just come through the wall. They were simple plywood structures and not designed to withstand a, a projectile, a rocket-powered projectile coming through. So uh, it was probably our good luck that, that uh, nothing happened. And when the rockets weren't raining down on you, I understand that Saturday night was party night on base. Yes, yes, that was always the party night. And of course, we would fly eight sorties a day right through the day and night. So we had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation. We even increased that during one particularly busy time. We even upped our sortie rate to 10, uh, which was pretty testing because it meant that we had to fly, one crew had to fly twice in the, in the one day. But most of the fellows that wouldn't be flying on Saturday night, we'd probably have perhaps two, perhaps three sorties, and those, those chaps would miss out on that particular party. But otherwise, it was party night. Now, the 35th Tactical Fighter Wing, of which we were a part, consisted of four F-100 squadrons and our Canberra squadron. We had C-123s, which were the aircraft that did the, the Agent Orange defoliation spraying in country, and they were also on our base. And we had a forward air control unit, the Waltfax. Uh, they were also on the base. And, of course, all these flying units, we'd all get together in one of the squadron's billeting areas for the Saturday night party. We just rotated it through the various squadrons. So your your turn didn't come up all that frequently, but when it did, the squadron that was putting on the show had to put on a good show. <laughs> what was the ordnance that you were typically carrying on board? The uh, We carried six Mark 117 general purpose bombs. Now, the 117 was a 700, nominally a 750-pound bomb. The the weight of the, uh, the explosive was a roughly half the weight of that 750. So something in the order of 350 pounds was was explosive. That's, what, 180 kilos, something like that. The rest of it was the bomb casing, a steel bomb casing. That didn't count the weight of the tail fin assembly that had to go on the back of the bomb. And there were a range of tail fin assemblies that could be fitted to these bombs depending on which aircraft was dropping them and so on. We used to drop what we call slicks, and a slick had a very... A streamlined tail assembly with four fins and uh, they were designed to be low drag. The weight of that bomb was then, my recollection is that it was about 820, 830 pounds, something like that. And we carried six of those, one on each wingtip and four in the bomb bay. The aircraft was capable of carrying more weight, but the length of these bombs and the tail fins prevented us from fitting more than four in the bomb bay. And what type of targets were you um, looking to bomb? Most of the targets were I guess bunker complexes, mostly. That was the sort of bread and butter target. Uh, North Vietnamese uh, regular army complexes and the Viet Cong complexes. The other targets would have been supporting troops in contact. This happened quite frequently where North Vietnamese forces were severely threatening South Vietnamese or American forces. They would call in an airstrike and we would have to, at sometimes fairly close proximity to the friendlies, to our troops, we'd have to drop bombs on, on the bad guys. The great thing about the Canberra and our, our operation was that we were very, very accurate. In fact, 7th Air Force ran a bombing competition for a little while, which we won, I think, sort of three months in a row, and then they finally gave the competition away because 
there didn't seem to be very much point in continuing. It wasn't good for the morale of, of the other units. But we could bomb very, very precisely. So we were able to bomb North Vietnamese troops very close to our troops fairly safely, whereas and this is no, not being in any way critical of the American forces, they were not in, every, in all cases able to do, to do it that accurately. Being all dive bombers, they tended to throw the bombs a little bit more randomly, and the attack direction was sometimes um, very critical. And, and Ron, from what sort of altitude when you're doing these low-level attacks would you be dropping to in order to you know, bomb you know, infantry on the ground? We normally bomb between about 1,200 feet and about 3,000 feet above ground level. If we went below 1,100 feet, we had a something like one in 100,000 chance of being hit by our own bombs, our own bomb fragments. Uh, we would normally fly toward the target, drop the bombs, and then continue to overfly the target, during which time I would be taking photographs of the bombs as they fell and, of course, as they hit the target. From those photographs, we used to do our own bomb damage assessment and determination as to whether we hit the target properly and what our errors were, because by this continual stress on, on our bombing accuracy, we became extremely accurate. I mean, direct hits were, were quite common for us, and we were pretty much being relied on in the end, I think, by 7th Air Force uh, and the facts to, to be able to do that sort of thing. So really, as situations became critical, you'd be called in, you know, more frequently all the time. We were often used, I think, to do precision sort of bombing. I remember we would take out sites that were actually shooting at us, you know, quad-mounted anti-aircraft guns would be shooting at us. Mortar sites would be on the ground threatening friendlies. We would take those out, often with direct hits. I remember one particular quad-mounted uh, anti-aircraft system, and these were all Russian. Most of these weapons, these, these weapons that the North Vietnamese were using were Russian weapons. The Vietnamese didn't get very much input from China, as I understood. Most of the stuff they were using was Russian, including Russian surface-air missiles and Russian anti-aircraft weapons. So... On this occasion, we had the fact told us was a, a quad mount uh, having a go at us, so, so we had to go back and mm -hmm. and, uh, and hit it with a direct hit. Ron, you mentioned that you actually saw one of your own planes go down. I didn't see it go down, but that was uh, John Downing and Al, Alan Pinchers. They were flying ahead of us on a combat sky spot. Now, we were in cloud, so we couldn't see anything else. We couldn't see the ground. We were in continuous cloud. The combat sky spot... Uh, was used when the cloud cover prevented us from visual bombing at low level. And there was a period of time over Vietnam, I think they called it the Crutchen or something like that. It was a period, would have been the wet, I'm sure. The cloud base would be down below 500 feet. Now, if we hadn't continued the bombing through that period, it would have given quite a respite to uh, transport movements down the Ho Chi Minh trails and uh, bunker complexes wouldn't have been attacked. And that would have been... Uh, not much help for our allies on the ground. So in order to keep the bombing going, the B-52s were used, and they were based in Guam, and they used to overfly and, and drop from, from quite high altitude. And we would bomb with these in-cloud sky spots from altitudes between about 16 and 24,000 feet. We were on one of these combat sky spot missions at the time, and ahead of us was John Downing and Al Pinchers on the same target. And this was the 14th of March, 1971. Now, we used to be transferred from the Direct Air Support Centre, this is by radio and control, to the combat sky spot operators. And when we were transferred, we were asked by the combat sky spot operator whether we'd heard from the magpie in front of us. And I don't remember the magpie's call sign anymore now. We were asked, had we 
hadn't had any, com- any communications with him because he lost contact. Well, we hadn't contact with him either, and we, we tried to contact him. Transpired that he just suddenly disappeared. Now, we were aware that this being right near the demilitarised zone, there were Russian SAM-2s that had been moved by the North Vietnamese Army into that area. So, of course, this was always something that we anticipated. We were sitting ducks as combat sky spots. We had to maintain a very accurate heading and a very accurate altitude for a significant period of time. I don't recall exactly how long, but it was for a period of minutes. And then as we approached the bomb release point, determined by the radar operator, he would count down the the release, sort of five, four, three, two, one, and then I'd, I'd pick all the bombs and just we would drop all six bombs simultaneously. So, of course, you know, on this situation where the aircraft in front had suddenly disappeared, we were feeling just a little bit tense because it was pretty likely that that's what had nailed them. Anyway, everything went okay. I guess they couldn't get another missile ready in time to nail us because we were, I think, only 10 minutes behind them. So there wasn't a lot of time between strikes. It was always a risk for us. And in fact, after that aircraft was lost, we stopped doing, as I remember, we stopped doing combat sky spots in the north part of the country where the SAM-2s were more readily moved by the North Vietnamese because we had no electronic countermeasures in the aircraft. All the American aeroplanes in country had this ECM gear. Now, it was a, a little sort of a light panel which alerted the aircrew to the fact they were being subject to radar energy from particular radar sites. So when the surveillance radar, which was designed to pick up incoming aircraft, illuminated the aircraft with the radar, they had a warning in the aircraft that they were now being viewed by a ground-based radar. And then there was another frequency that was used for the, the beam rider, the targeting radar for the missile. The missile basically flew up this beam, as I recall, and they had a warning. So whenever this happened, they could just bug out, turn around and clear out of the area until they lost the signal. We didn't know we were being interrogated, so we were sitting ducks and we were rather conscious of that. If you could see these missiles, you could dodge them because we could outturn the missile. This missile was a fairly short burn. It had a burn of something just over a minute, as I recall, solid rocket motor. And uh, although it, it could manoeuvre itself, once the rocket motor had failed, it was just like a, an artillery shell and it really didn't have much capacity to be turning and, and it, you know, it couldn't outmanoeuvre our aeroplane. As long as you could see them, you could avoid them. Ron, can you tell us about Magpie? Well, the squadron's crest is a, is a Magpie. And so being used in country when we arrived, and because uh, the squadron moved in there in 1967, the Magpies were well known in, in the country. Ron, you particularly had, with your partner, an impressive bomb damage assessment record. Can you share that with us? Uh, well, not, not so much just my partner and I. We, we did have a pretty good run because we flew, uh, Dave Godfrey and I flew for a long period together in the squadron. We did fly with some other you know, pilots and navigators too, but generally we, we stayed together as a crew and became a pretty decent, uh, I, I guess, uh, combination and uh, we had some very, very good results in terms of direct hits and uh, took out some difficult targets. But the other guys who also crewed up in similar ways, they, they had very good results too. The squadron, as I said earlier, the squadron was generally pretty well regarded. We were very proficient. Can you specifically talk about the Sampam factory? Oh, yes. This was a, a target up... Uh, well, just to start get back to wire sampan, the Americans uh, were supporting a, a coast guard on the east coast of Vietnam, which was uh, basically trying to stop the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, moving supplies from North Vietnam by by sea and then moving them inland through the river systems. And once they moved the had to move them inland, they were using sampans to do that, which were fairly shallow bottom 
vessels, of course, that could negotiate the rivers a fair way inland. So one of the factories in which they produced these vessels was set to us as a target. Now, the Vietnamese were very clever as to where they situated this. They situated in a very sort of a ravine which had very steep sides, and that small creek, which became a small uh, river, ran into the main, the main river, sort of a T-intersection. And immediately opposite the, uh, the factory and the little, uh, the short creek river, there was almost a sheer cliff. And the sheer cliff meant that it was extremely difficult to get ordnance in to get this, get this factory. Uh, so anyway, we were set the target. And it was a case of having to more or less estimate where the target was on the run in because you couldn't see it. Was completely obliterated and and the aircraft i only had a matter of a second or two in which to adjust the aircraft's tracking in order to nail the target now i believe I, I i missed on the first run in the sense i didn't throw any bombs out but i wasn't lined up properly on the first run so i had to take a second run but i was able to from surrounding terrain more accurately assess the run in that time and so uh, we managed to, to nail the target. But it was an extremely difficult target. Other aircraft had tried before us and weren't able to, to nail it. However, we got a direct hit. And you also attacked the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the mountains in particular. That's right. Now, the supplies were moved, as I mentioned earlier, they were moved by sea to some degree, but most of the supplies were moved in country down what was called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, it wasn't just one trail. It was a, a lot of um, intersecting, more or less parallel roads that, that ran down from North Vietnam into, and also some of the, the, the trails, I think, ran into, into Laos. So this was their way of bringing war supplies down from the north. Now, we needed to, to interdict these trails in the afternoon so that the, the trucks that would be moving down the trail at night would uh, be stopped by the, the road being cut. Now, we could cut the road in, in, on flat areas, but it was rather easier for them because they had a lot of bulldozers positioned all the way along the various trails to, to repair them as quickly as they could. And if we interdicted the roads on the flat, that was generally easier for them to make a route for the trucks to bypass the the bomb craters. The best place to interdict them was on the mountains and uh, Tiger Mountain and mountains like that. So we would try and drop bombs either, not so much on the trail itself, because that was difficult to do. The problem with level bombing is you've got to know very accurately the terrain height. The mountainside wasn't so difficult in respect of being able to throw a bomb above the trail and you'd cause a landslide that would stop it, or a bomb beneath the trail would cause a, another collapse of the, the roadway above. And these were very difficult to repair. So the trucks would run down the mountainside and then suddenly there'd be no road and they couldn't go around it. The terrain was just too steep. And uh, then that, that night, uh, the trucks having been stopped would be attacked by the uh, C-130s. They, they had A models that they configured with Bofors guns and they also in the rear part of the aircraft mounted some, uh, some I think they were 20 mil Gatling gun type machine guns. These, the sighting for these weapons was done with, with low light TV and uh, an infrared television and the operator of this equipment would be also in the back of the C-130 and they would provide information to a headset that was operated by the pilot and he would be able to, to look out the left hand window in the cockpit and circle the aircraft around these, these trucks and, uh, and basically wipe them out. It was, it was quite an efficient operation I believe. Ron, when we talk about the Vietnam War, a lot is known about the Army, but much less is known about the Navy and the Air Force. Can you share your own experiences on that? Well, the Australian area of uh, responsibility was down in Phuc Thuy province, 
and the squadrons down there, 35 squadron and 9 squadron, were based at Bung Tau. We were based up at Phan Rang. Now, that, that I should say Bung Tau was down in Four Corps, uh, the very south, the Delta area. Uh, we were up in Two Corps, up uh, south of Cameron Bay, and uh, very few Australians really know that we had a Canberra squadron in the 35th Tactical Fighter Wing. They tend to think of Australian area of operations all being in, in that Fuktui province area there. We did not support the Australians very much. I only recall perhaps two two missions where we were bombing in that Australian area. Uh, I think both were probably on the long highs, which were uh, a group of granite hills that the Vietnam, the Viet Cong particularly, I believe, used as, as havens and uh, they were very hard to unseat from that. So we, we threw, a few, threw a few bombs at this granite rock pile. I don't think with much... We probably gave them sore ears or something like that, but I doubt the bombs did a great deal of, uh, of useful damage. I think, I think we got a secondary from one of them. Uh, we may have somehow ignited an ammunition dump or something, but I'm not sure that we were that effective. However, we did do a lot of bombing operations in four core in the Delta, and uh, much of this was canal-side bombing because, again, as I mentioned earlier, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong used water transport for moving their uh, war stores around. And in the south part of the country, there's a big canal complex in the Delta. And these canals, are run, they run quite straight. So they would build their bunker complexes alongside the canals, their store areas alongside the canals, readily available to their little... A sampan transport, and we could uh, line bomb the canals. So I would set the, the six bombs up with a, a time delay on the release so that we just bomb, drop a stick of bombs in a line where each explosion pretty much overlapped with the previous one. We could take out quite a long area of canal side uh, bunkers and stores that way. And we, we did a lot of that sort of work. Uh, that was much easier work in terms of uh, there, were no, there was no terrain to worry about and the canal was pretty obvious. It, w it was fairly easy to target. It certainly wasn't as interesting as targeting up in uh, even Three Corps, uh, north of Benoit and, uh, and then up into, into Two Corps and, uh, and particularly in I Corps where it was a lot hotter. But in, in relation to the dangers that we experienced, we lost two aircraft while I was in country. Uh, one definitely that we know of to a SAM, and the other aircraft hit terrain. Now, they were on a combat sky spot at night. The, the pilot of the aircraft uh, was a chap that I flew with quite often, and uh, he was a very experienced pilot, and I don't believe he would have flown into terrain by accident. I don't think there's... Uh, Mike Herbert was his name, and I don't think Mike would have flown into terrain by accident. I... I, I pretty much staked my life on that. So something happened to that aeroplane that caused it to get down that low and, and hit the terrain. They've discovered, they in recent times, discovered the wreckage, but of course they can't establish, other than the fact that it hit terrain, uh, why. It was on a combat sky spot, at some, something over 20,000 feet, and why they would have gone down to run into terrain at somewhere around 6,000 feet or whatever it was, six 7,000 feet, I don't recall exactly the height of the terrain as it was discovered but but why would they have done that that's it, it's most unlikely that they would do that there'd be no reason to you're at night time you've dropped your bombs really all you want to do is just get back to base and finish the mission you're not about to go gallivanting around 
dancing around at low, low altitude. Mm. Absolutely no reason to do it. So the likelihood is that aircraft was somehow damaged. I haven't looked into this very closely, but I'm not sure that they've discovered any evidence of, of ground fire or SAM or whatever, but it's most likely, I believe, that they were hit by a SAM because being a combat sky spot, we were sitting ducks, and, uh, and this happened in November of 1970. So it happened, uh, the, the incident with John Downing and Al Pinchers was in March of 71. So there was some five months or thereabouts between the two incidents. You know, they were the two we lost. But we were being shot at all the time, of course, and we were operating level bombing always between ostensibly 1,200 and about 3,000, 3,500, somewhere around about there. 3,500 would have been forced on us by terrain in the sense that if the terrain is very mountainous and you're bombing a target that's down in the valley, the terrain, the height difference between your target and the top of the mountaintops can be at easily 3,500 or more. So that could sometimes force us up a bit. But if we could, we'd try and bomb lower because this would result in less potential error. The bomb's in the air for a shorter period of time and therefore the bombing error can be somewhat less. It, you're not concerned so much with the line error as you're concerned with overshooting and undershooting the target. There were times we would get down to 1,100 feet and uh, there were times we probably got a bit lower than that, but I won't go into that uh, because it... It pretty much depended on how urgently the guys on the ground needed needed the the, the support, and uh, we would generally support them to to, a, to the degree they they required that. The difficulty of hitting an aircraft that's level bombing, as compared to an aircraft that's dive bombing, from for the for the anti aircraft people is considerable. When an aircraft's pointing its nose at you. In a, in a dive bomb run, you can pretty much shoot up at the aeroplane and with your cone of fire, there's a chance that even though the aircraft presents a very small target, there's a reasonable chance that you might get some rounds onto the aircraft. But when the when level bombing, the, the aircraft's maintaining a constant altitude so that and a constant airspeed, but the the angular velocity of the aircraft is changing for the, t- for the person on the ground. And they have to lead the aircraft. We used to bomb at 300 knots and they, the, the uh, anti-aircraft gunner has to aim the, the guns considerably in front of the aeroplane in order that the aircraft and the bullets will coincide. And most of their fire didn't lead us sufficiently. We used to pick up rounds at the tail of the aeroplane and the tailplane and that sort of thing, but they always seemed to be firing behind us. That suited us just fine. <laughs> and uh, I guess that sort of protected us a lot from from the fact the fact that they weren't aiming sufficiently far in front of the aeroplane to, to hit us. So you were there for 11 months and were one of the longest serving pilots with the RAF in Vietnam, performing an astonishing 261 bombing runs. Yes, I, I was there for, I was in country for 11 months and two weeks. I was just two weeks under 12 months. Now that was a little more than the standard tour. I think I went a, about three weeks over because the squadron was going to leave Vietnam and uh, and there was no sense in posting someone back for a matter of a few weeks, so I, I was extended a bit. There was one other chap, uh, Pete Murphy, who was also extended, and I think he had another couple of weeks longer than I. So I think Pete probably did over 12 months in, in country, and he, he did get more missions than I did. I don't know exactly what his total was. What was it like coming home after the war, the public's reaction? Uh, generally... Uh, 
the, the public had been, uh, I guess, indoctrinated a little bit, but certainly there was an adverse reaction to people that had been involved in the Vietnam War and, and, and we essentially just didn't talk about it, you know. We just ignored all of that. I didn't uh, feel inclined to be involved in any return service functions or anything of that nature. Certainly, uh, I don't think any of us considered marching on Anzac Day, but the Welcome Home March, which was, you know, some 20 years after, more than 20 years after the Vietnam War was over, it was this Welcome Home, as I recall it was called, in, in Sydney and most of the other capitals. The great majority of us attended that because it was a marvellous, marvellous reunion. We all caught up with chaps we hadn't seen for quite a long time and uh, and then many of us after that started marching on Anzac Day. We were being asked to do it because, of course, the World War II fellows were starting to get a bit thin. You were a career Air Force man before Vietnam, but did the war make you decide you'd had enough after all? Not so much the Vietnam War as the fact that I thought I'd done most things that were of great interest in, in the Air Force and that after that I would be looking at a desk job and, uh, and that didn't, didn't really appeal to me that much. So prior to that, I had been I'd been flying C forty sevens, Dakotas, DC threes, as most people would know them, in New Guinea, and then I went on to C one thirty A operations, uh, which was the first Hercules, when they were still a very new aeroplane, and we used those in strategic and tactical operations. So I'd been involved in supply dropping and dropping troops and so forth, as well as flying around the world on on various. Uh, pick up operations for equipment and that sort of thing. And then I was posted the VI, to the VIP squadron. I spent three and a half years on the VIP squadron flying uh, some pretty interesting aeroplanes and uh, and that was just at the time that Menzies left government and Harold Holt had taken over. I was involved in picking up one of the VAC-111s from England in 1967-68. We had to undergo a a conversion course, of course, with the factory, and uh, that was a pretty interesting time. And then, then I was posted to bombers, to the operational conversion unit, went, went to Vietnam. After all of that, I thought I'd pretty much done it all, <laughs> and that from now on, it would be all rather an anti-climax. So I then had decided that I would leave the Air Force. Ron, going back to Vietnam, you were exposed to DDT and Agent Orange. How did this happen, and... How do you feel it has affected your health and indeed the health of your colleagues? Well, now, we weekly were sprayed with DDT and that was sprayed by our colleagues in the C-123s that were involved mainly in spraying Agent Orange to defoliate the various parts of the country that they wanted exposed. And they used to delight in spraying the DDT with these aeroplanes at very low altitude around dawn uh, so we would we had two-story hooches that we lived in plywood structures uh, frame frame structures and uh, they would fly over the top at a, only a very few feet above the rooftops and the amount of DDT that sprayed was pretty suffocating in that it would blow in through the air conditioners that we had you know mounted on the walls these were just simple portable air conditioners and they would blow this stuff into the point where the noise of the aeroplane would, would give you a little bit of pre-warning so you would then grab a sheet uh, or something, a towel, and muffle your face with it to reduce the amount of this stuff that you were inhaling because it was, it was pretty strong. 
And that went on weekly during the whole time I was there. And of course, the same aeroplanes that were spraying the Agent Orange were spraying the DDT. And I dare say that although the tanks would have been empty before they put the DDT in, they wouldn't have been purged. So there may have been some residual Agent Orange being mixed up with this. But in any event, they also used to spray the outside the perimeter of Fan Rang in order that the, the enemy couldn't get close to the base. Uh, they kept that defoliated for some distance away from the, from the fence line. We had, a, we had a double fence line. I think it was about 17 miles from memory. And this double fence line at night time would have dogs, uh, German shepherds, were let loose in this area and they were killers. They were essentially trained to kill anything that came in between the fences. And memory is that there was something like uh, 25 metres between the inner and the outer fence, something of that nature. So that was defoliated, so there'd be some... There were watchtowers and, and, uh, situated around the perimeter, and uh, and some of that that defoliant inevitably drifted over the, over the base. So none of us had any idea how much of that stuff we were getting, but regardless of the the very well-established uh, carcinogenous effect of Agent Orange has also been established the very carcinogenous effect of DDT. So many of us in the squadron developed prostate cancer. I did, and uh, so did Dave Godfrey, my, my flying partner. Dave, he killed Dave. Uh, he, he was of, you know, he once diagnosed, apparently they couldn't stop it, so, so Dave passed, passed away from that. And I, I haven't really kept tabs on all the other fellows and their, their, their experiences, but, but I suspect many of us have been subjected to some sort of you know, medical problems of that nature by exposure. It, it's, so, it's so long back that you can sort of discuss these things with, with I guess, less, less emotion, less concern. You can be more pragmatic about it. Be you know? more pragmatic, exactly. Um, yeah. But it was one of the defining things in your life. You know, it, it was one of those, for better or worse, one of those incredible experiences. The comrade, I mean, what, what I found so sad was you losing your mate, you know, because when you've served with someone, you've served with them in combat and you've gone through all the challenges, all the troubles, all the threats, and you got through, through with them and you've come back on every mission and then to lose him later, due to bloody cancer um, because the authorities didn't know what they were doing was actually killing their own guys um, and that you were all expendable but you were there to do the job for them at the time is the saddest thing. It is. The, you know, the, the spraying of DDT was designed to reduce the malaria risk because mal there was a malaria risk in Vietnam and, and in order to reduce that, they felt the trick was to spray DDT. But of course, it's a toss up now whether the malaria would not have been a, you know, less of a risk than perhaps the uh, the cancers that followed. There were many fellows. I, I'm aware of I, I, a friend that that I I had in the Army Servo Regiment, uh, a major there, had served in Vietnam, and he told me about the fact they used to walk through the jungle, in uh, in his area, with the foliage dripping Agent mm, Orange. I've heard that. And it was that, it was that you know, densely applied. And so he was subjected to it a lot. And when he returned from Vietnam, uh, he uh, fathered a couple of children, both of whom were significantly disabled. I think that was the experience of a lot of, a lot of returnees. It affected our genetics to a degree that aren't fully understood. It's likely that the effect wore off 
But fellows who, you know, fathered children fairly soon after their return often had these sorts of problems. I think it's, it was sort of swept under the rug. For a long time, there was, there was a, a, an unpreparedness to accept Agent Orange was, was carcinogenous, that it was causing problems. Ron, you didn't let this stop you, though, as you celebrated your 71st birthday in 2010 at the base camp of Mount Everest. Yes, that's right. Uh, three younger friends of mine were ascending. They, they'd intended to climb the mountain. And, uh, and one of the chaps, uh, Steve Bock, and I had been over to New Zealand. Steve, who, was going to, who had already been planning to climb Everest in 2010 in May, he said, why don't you come up to the Everest base camp with us? And I said, OK. Yeah. And so that's what started it. And I made sure that I was at the base camp when they, the three of them returned from the summit. They all summited quite well. The weather was good to them and, uh, and so was their, their health and fitness. And I was very pleased to welcome them back into the base camp. And then we all walked back down to, to Lukla together. And, uh, and uh, then I had my 71st birthday, which was the 29th of May, 2010, and the significance of the 29th of May is that it was on the 29th of May 1953 that that uh, Hillary and Tensing climbed the mountain, and uh, so there were there were several celebrations that going on simultaneously. Pretty much, we had a big party. The Sherpas made a big fuss of the fact that I turned 71, and most of, most Sherpas aren't that able by the time they get to that age. The fact that I could do it was seemed to be of some significance, and then of course the others were all celebrating the fact they'd summited the mountain. And of course, there was the overriding celebration of the fact that it was the 29th of May and that was the anniversary of the time that Hillary and Tensing had climbed in the first place. So we had a lot of fun. It's a remarkable story, Ron. Thank you for sharing and for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. That was Angus Horton speaking with Ron Aitken, career Air Force man and veteran of Vietnam. If you're not already, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We have an interview with an Australian veteran out every Tuesday and bonus episodes on Fridays. This Friday's episode, I attended the Reserve Forces Day Parade and met World War II veteran Norton Duckmanton and spoke with him at length about his wartime service, amongst other highlights of the parade. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Also, check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Hat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and as always, lest we forget. <laughs>